0: This morning's scripture reading comes from John, chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is God's word.
1: For the past couple of months, we've been looking at... Uh the Gospel According to John. John was essentially Jesus' best friend. And uh, why do you have four different books about Jesus Christ in the Bible? You always wonder, uh, why do we do that? It's because uh, understanding Jesus Christ and understanding and knowing him, there is a... It's, you can look at somebody from one angle and really come to understand and know somebody from that angle. And then you look at the person from another angle and you see it's the same person, but there's a lot more depth there. There's a lot more understanding there. And so the gospel according to John, much like all the gospels that we read about Jesus Christ, is kind of like a, a piece of hard candy um, with a, something soft in the center. You, you take it, how many, what is, it, what is the phrase, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a tootsie pop? Um, you're Getting to the center it takes a long time, but it's worth it, and you savor every moment of it because you learn so much more and you get to much more the heart of uh of what you're tasting now for those of you that doesn't make a lot of sense it's knowing jesus christ is a lot like impressionistic art when you stand it from a distance you can take a look and you see there's a picture it's very very clear but as you get closer and closer some things get hazier you have to get deeper into the center to understand the nuances of this piece of work and that's really what the gospel according to john is Now, if you look at the Bibles, if you look in your Bibles, your actual text, actual Bibles that you hold, um, the author puts a little bit of a, uh, or the commentators, the Bible commentators that edit the Bible here will tell you that the earliest manuscripts don't contain this particular passage. And uh, so there's brackets usually around this text. And the consensus is a lot of scholars will tell you that this passage was probably not written by John, the author. Um, A lot of commentators will tell you because of syntax, a lot of reasons, and we're not going to get into the reasons, but most likely this came from Luke. And um, although we're not going to get into that, it's absolutely unanimous that this is an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's still in the Bible. And that teaches us three things about Jesus here in this text. The patience of Christ, the poise of Christ, the pardon of Christ. Three P's. The patience, the poise, the pardon of Jesus. That's what we learn about today. First, we're going to go into the patience of Jesus. Verses uh, 2 through 6. Here the teachers, uh, if you see the teachers of the law, they, they bring this woman who, committed, who was caught. She was committing an act of adultery. She was caught in the act. And they bring her in front of Jesus, in front of this crowd, and they ask him, what do you say? That's basically what's going on. And Jesus, what he does is he's teaching And he bends down, and he writes on the ground. Now, the text says two times that this woman was caught in the act. And the reason why we emphasize here that this woman was caught in the act, this woman was caught in the act, why? Because in the Mosaic law, particularly in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, adultery was punishable by death. It was a capital crime. So if you notice, they don't ask Jesus if he thought whether or not the woman was guilty. The guilt was proven. The guilt was well known. It was clear. This woman had no defense. They were asking Jesus about the penalty. What do we do with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery? Now, if you see, uh, the law, the law of God is incredibly just, but it was also very, very nuanced, and it was incredibly generous. Contrary to what we see uh, socially about the Bible, you know, there's a very negative view about the Bible that we often see. The law is very nuanced and very generous in doling out capital punishment, very careful. Today, much of our criminal justice system is based on the probability of somebody committing a crime. But back then, in the ancient times, the laws around evidence and presenting evidence were a lot stricter, a lot more strict. And so, in order to convict somebody of adultery, you needed two witnesses who actually saw the sexual act happen. So as a result, almost nobody, almost nobody was ever convicted of adultery and almost nobody was ever executed for adultery. So this is a brilliant trap. These Pharisees, they thought this through. It was a brilliant trap. They caught this woman in this act of adultery. The law says, the Mosaic law says, you must execute this woman if, if she was caught in the act. Now, what do you say, Jesus? Up until this point, Jesus, as a rabbi, as a great teacher, has been teaching compassion. He's been teaching grace. He's been teaching about forgiveness. But what happens, really what the Pharisees were asking him was, what about justice? What about this law? Because you say you are from God. What about law? What about justice? What do you say about this? The teachers couldn't stand Jesus' teachings. So they were really looking for a way to trap him. That's what it says in this text. They were looking for a way to trap Jesus. What's the trap? On one hand, on one hand, um, if you save the woman, This woman clearly didn't matter to the Pharisees, to the teachers. On one hand, if you save this woman, then clearly you're going to trample on God's grace. You're going to trample on God's compassion. And you've been teaching about compassion. That's all you've been teaching about, compassion and grace and love and forgiveness. So if you uphold this law, which you're supposed to do because she was caught in the act of adultery, you're going to trample on God's grace. You would not be for the outcast. You would not be for the people who need forgiveness, who need compassion, but If you call for the execution of this woman, you're going to trample. I'm sorry. If you save this woman, you're going to trample on God's law. And you would not be for compassion. But if you execute this woman, you're going to trample on God's grace. Jesus, he's meek and he's lowly. That's what he says. He's meek and lowly at heart. Um, If you truly execute this woman, you would not be meek you would not be acting lowly at heart. It would actually disprove that you are a man of compassion, a man of love, a man of grace. It would disprove that you are the Messiah. All this teaching about grace, all this teaching about love, it would be a sham. Either you disregard the woman or you disregard the law, but you cannot uphold both the woman and the law. You can't do both. Either you're going to be moral, and as a result you're going to trample on grace, or you're going to be gracious and compassionate, and you're going to trample on morality, trample on God's law. But you can't be both. You can't do both. It's a perfect trap. And disproving even one aspect of this would disprove all of Jesus altogether. It would, it would disprove even, just disproving one aspect of Jesus' character would disprove all of his character. How does Jesus respond? What does he say? Here are these teachers. They make this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, so most likely she was naked, they're just cruel to her. They make her stand in front of these men and she's afraid, and she's in shame. History, religions, they were always, history has proven religions have been absolutely cruel to women. But look at Jesus Christ. Even though this woman is morally beneath her, he doesn't treat her as morally beneath her. He doesn't treat her poorly. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the humility of Jesus, the patience of Jesus. Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You can find rest in Jesus. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he gathers his disciples together. He knew who it was that was going to betray him. In fact, they ask him, and he tells them, he shows one disciple who it is that's going to betray him. And what does he do? First, he washes Judas' feet. He washed, there's no place in the Bible that says he washed everyone's feet except for Judas. He washes Judas' feet. He puts himself in a low place and gets Judas's dirt on him so that he would be clean. Do you see that? And then, and then they ask him, the disciple asks him, who was it? Who is it that's going to betray you? And he says, the one to whom I'm going to dip this bread and give to, give to. That's the one that's going to betray me. And we say, oh, that was like a code sign. That's really not what was going to happen. Back then, to have a meal with somebody and to feed them, to give them bread was a very intimate act. You only did that to people that you loved and you submitted to. And what Jesus is doing was he's saying, you know, Judas, I know who it is. I know it's you. Eat. Eat with me. It's still an invitation That's the compassion of Jesus That's the gentleness of Jesus That's the the patience of Jesus How do we act? We don't act that way You know how we act? We throw stones at people That's what we do We gossip Because when you're gossiping You're throwing stones at those people We are very contentious We're duplicitous You know why? Because we want to be superior We want to act superior in front of them And why do we do that? We act superior Because we feel inferior That's what we do People act superior to other people because they feel inferior on the inside. So we attack people. We look for people um, who are weaker than us, the people who are wrong, the people who are irreligious, the people who are immoral. It's very, very easy. Or sometimes if you're on the other side of the plane, you look at people who are religious. They seem fake to you. We're always throwing stones at one another, and that's why the red states hate the blue states. That's why the blue states hate the red states. That's why people who are red, if you know what I'm talking about, people who are one side of the political field, always pokes and throws stones at the other side and vice versa. That's why religious people always hate the irreligious, and the irreligious always hate the religious. That's why taxpayers always hate the Pharisees, and the Pharisees look down on the taxpayers. That's how it is. We throw stones at each other. We're constantly comparing ourselves with them we're constantly destroying reputations of people around us we're constantly doing that we want to execute people why because our egos are starving and we need that we want to feed that you know what you need to do you need to look at your ego and first come to grips with the fact that you, your ego is starving and when your ego when you're hungry you will eat anything if you're, if you're starving, like really starving, we live in a, a very developed country, and so there are very few people in this room who have ever experienced starvation. But there are people in the city who starve. And if you're starving, you will eat anything. You will look to eat anything. And the thing is, when, you're, when your egos are starving, what you're doing, is you're looking for anything that you can to feed it so that you will hunger less. But the thing is, that's not the way the egos work. Our egos are insatiable. And so the more you feed it, the hungrier it gets. You need to starve your ego. You need to do what's counterintuitive. When your ego starts acting up and rising up, you need to starve it. You need to rid yourself of the superiority. Look at Jesus. He knows he's superior. He knows he's superior to this woman. He knows he's superior to the Pharisees, these teachers of the law. And yet, does he feed his ego? What does he do? First, he lowers himself. The gentleness of Jesus. He says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly at heart. You can starve your ego. You can kill your ego. On one hand, the gospel gives you an incredible assurance, a certainty about God's love for you. It's what you base your entire life around. So there's no need to prove yourself because it's not going to get you anywhere. You can't prove yourself. The Bible absolutely states who we really are. And if you really believe that, the Bible says, you know what, you can kill your ego because you are utterly loved. And if you know that you were utterly loved then your ego, you can starve your ego. There's assurance, there's certainty. You don't need to prove yourself because you are absolutely sure where you stand with God. But it also gets rid of the cowardice. It also gets rid of the fear. You're no longer afraid of what other people think about you. And when you know that you don't need to prove yourself and you know that you're not afraid of other people and what they think about you, there's tremendous courage. There's tremendous power. There's a confidence that doesn't feed your ego. There's a confidence that makes you gentle. There's a confidence that makes you patient. That is humility. That's humility. The gentleness of Christ makes you gentle. The patience of Christ makes you patient. That's the patience of Jesus that we learn. The second point is the confidence of Christ, right? The poise of Jesus. Verses 6 to 9. So these teachers, they challenge him. They look at Jesus, and what do you see Jesus doing? He bends down, and he starts to write on the ground. Why? What does he actually write? Commentators throughout history have been trying to figure out what it was that Jesus was writing. And you you hear and you read all sorts of stuff that Jesus could have been writing. But what that really means, when you have like 15 commentators and they all have a different idea as to what Jesus could have been writing, most likely the answer is we don't know what Jesus is writing and it probably doesn't matter a whole lot what he was writing. It's probably not that important, but it does say things that we need to know. One, it tells us that the story was real, that this actually happened. Because ancient fictional genres in those days didn't have mundane details about how Jesus was standing, you know, when something actually was taking place that's of action, that's actionable. Ancient fictional genres are all about action, you know, activity, work. So even there are very, very few statements that are made. and It's all about action and doing that modern genre where um, you you go into very detail as to what a person's wearing and and acting and how a person's acting even in very mundane situations that type of genre in f- a fiction didn't really evolve or come around until about maybe 200 years ago and so um, we know that in this time the reason why John put uh, the reason why this genre whoever it was that actually put this in the scripture is because it actually happened this is history John's not writing, he's writing, the author's writing history, he's writing news. John's trying to get us to see, right, and this is the second thing, the poise of Jesus. You notice, this is a life and death situation. The next phrase that comes out of Jesus' mouth will either condemn him or condemn this woman. And he knows that, and yet do you see him rattled? Now. Here's this woman, the next thing that, she said, that he says will make life or death for her. And yet Jesus just gets down and he just starts writing on the ground. That's what he's doing. Life or death situation. He just bends down and starts writing. What that means is that although Jesus is meek, although he's lowly at heart, that meekness is not weakness. It doesn't mean that he's weak. Jesus is demonstrating tremendous courage here, like a championship thoroughbred American pharaoh, we, we hear he won the triple crown horse racing. He just actually won again yesterday. Um, this championship thoroughbred, incredible power. And yet with that, you know, these horses are, inc- if you've ever seen a championship thoroughbred horse, these horses are massive, tremendous power and strength. And yet so submissive to this puny guy that's sitting on top of him, guiding them around. You notice that? Incredible power and yet incredible submissiveness. Incredible power, and yet they're choosing it's a voluntary submission. That is meekness. That is the meekness. That is the humility. Power under submission. Courage underlying gentleness. That's the courage of Christ. You know, Jesus, at any point in time, he could have commanded the angels to come, he could have commanded the angels to help him when he was on the cross, but he was submissive. Incredible power. And yet, to the point of death, he was submissive. You never mistake Jesus's meekness. You never mistake Jesus's uh, humility for weakness. To be meek is to be gentle yet powerful, to be gentle yet courageous, to be gentle because you know you have ultimate power. Here's Joseph. In the early books of the Bible, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you have Joseph in the Old Testament he is in prison because of a crime he did not commit. He's in prison for 13 years because he was alleged that he was was committing adultery. And here he is in jail, 13 years, taken out of jail, brought before the Pharaoh because of a gift that he has to be able to interpret dreams. And here he's thinking, I just got out of jail. The next thing I say could throw me back into jail if I say something wrong. What does he do? He doesn't hold back. He speaks the truth. There's no mincing of words. He's respectful, yet there's no mincing of words. Why? Because that kind of humility, that kind of brokenness draws out courage. Here's Daniel, also in the Old Testament, a book of prophecy. He faces the most powerful ruler in the world to date. This is the Babylonian king. And and what does he tell this king? Your kingdom is going to fall to ruin. Your days are numbered. That's what he says. On one hand, very respectfully, but on the other hand, he's incredibly courageous. Numbers chapter 12 calls Moses the most humble man on the earth, the most humble man that ever walked on the earth. He approaches Pharaoh in his humility, the most powerful man in the world to date in his era, the Egyptian uh, Pharaoh. And what does he say? We will overturn your armies, so you better surrender and let go of these weak people look at jesus amazingly poised amazingly calm life or death situation life or death situation yet he's completely unraveled his power his courage and yet he's so controlled and he chooses to be low and he chooses to be weak revelation chapter five revelation very unique book the only book of its kind in Revelation chapter 5, you see uh, John writes, again written by the, uh, the author, the same author, John. He says, behold the lion. John looks to the lion, right? The lion is clearly Jesus Christ. Behold the lion of God. John looks to this lion and he says, instead of seeing the lion, I see a lamb. I see a lamb. And there, and not just the lamb, a messed up lamb, a broken up lamb. So the question is, so is Jesus a lion or is he a lamb? And that's the point. Some of us, when we see Jesus, we see a lion. Other people, when we see Jesus, he's a lamb. But the reason why we do that is because he's both. And if you're like Jesus, you will be both. You will be poised. You will be confident. You'll be unrattled in your circumstances, unrattled in your situations, unrattled in your suffering. You will be patient. You will be calm. And that's because you have a tremendous assurance, a tremendous power. A tremendous courage that's inside. Jesus could have smitten the Pharisees. He said, you know what? You guys are so annoying. And he could, ah, and they could have all been dead. He could have looked at this woman and said, you know what? You deserve to die too. Ah, and you could have died, right? But he doesn't. Tremendous power, and yet he's poised, calm. What does he say? He says, if any of you were without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now when you hear that, For years I used to read that and say oh what I'm presuming here is that what Jesus means is that only a sinless person has the authority to actually execute a person only a sinless person can do that so since we're all sinners what Jesus is saying is don't judge people don't judge one another that's the way I used to understand this text you know and and the Pharisees upon these great teachers of the law who are standing around Jesus and Jesus says everyone here's a sinner Right, So don't judge. They were so convicted by those words one by one. They were ready to strike the storm, They dropped their stones and they went away. Wow, what a powerful story. There's no way that could have been the case. There's no way. The Pharisees, would never, would have, they would never have agreed with that logic. And in fact, you wouldn't agree with that logic either. And the reason why is because if that is true, then that means even Hitler's in heaven. If that's true, uh, any wrongdoer, there's no such thing as hell. You understand what I'm saying? If that were true, everyone gets away. Whether you're Hitler, a serial killer, yourself, it doesn't matter. We're all in the same place. We know that's not true. We know that can't be true. If God is a just God, we know that cannot be true. If you believe in justice of any wrongdoing, you would trust that God holds no sin unaddressed, unaccounted for. You would understand that. Otherwise, because if he even let one sin go, that means he's not just. If even one wrongdoer can get away, unaccounted for, then God would not be just, and he would not be all-powerful. The very character of God rests on a passage like this. Do you understand that? What Jesus was doing is he was actually quoting from the law. There are two chapters in the book of Deuteronomy, fourth book of the law, right, Old Testament. There are two chapters that basically teach this, that if you are a witness to a crime, a witness to adultery, for instance, The witness himself must initiate the execution, okay? But the executioner, that witness, cannot be guilty of the same crime. So the witness cannot be guilty of the same crime that he is initiating the execution for. You can't be an adulterer. In other words, in this case, you cannot be an adulterer if you want to convict somebody and execute somebody uh, because of adultery. And Jesus knows some of these men, they're adulterers. He knows that. But really what he's saying is this. What he's saying is, I see you. I know you. I know you. I see you. I know you to the core. I'm the witness of you. That's what he's saying. You are not innocent. None of you here are innocent. That's what he's saying. You think you've gotten away with it, and you're using this woman as a way of justifying yourself. But I know you. And I know you to the core, and you are all guilty. And it doesn't mean just because you feel like you've gotten away, it doesn't mean you've gotten away. You may feel that way, but you haven't. He's convicting them. Why? Number one, Jesus knows the double standard with women in that society. In the law, both the man and the woman who were caught in adultery were to be executed. But where is the man here? You don't see the man. In the law, it specifically, explicitly states that both the man and the woman were to be executed if they were caught in the act of adultery. But where's the man? So most likely, you see the woman, the woman's definitely exposed. The woman has got no defense. Women in those days had no rights. They were easy targets. They had no rights. A woman's testimony in court was not even admissible as a witness. You, do you see that? So a woman had no rights. So Jesus knows either they saw the act and only convicted the woman because women had no rights. They were deliberately picking on a lesser person. Or this was a conspiracy. They actually set it up, and they let the man go. Or they didn't really even see it, so they were lying. Either way, whether you're conspiring, you were committing adultery, um, conspiring, or you are false witnesses, or you set this woman up in cons- a conspiracy, Right? Or you let the man go and let the woman go and, and, uh, and bring, just bringing the woman up on charges, they were all actually punishable by death. And Jesus is saying, Yes, I do honor the law. Of course, I honor the law. But what about you? What about your double standards here? What about your adultery? What about your conspiracy? What about your false witnessing? What about your lies and your deception? You are taking away. Actually, what he's saying is, I am taking away your right to be a witness. You are not a worthy witness because all of you are guilty. On one hand, he never says a stone shouldn't be thrown. He doesn't say, hey, 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 we don't do that anymore here. That's not what he says. He doesn't say a stone shouldn't be thrown. This woman is guilty. Jesus never denies the need for punishment, but he says, you are lustful. Remember, in the book of Matthew, the largest sermon that Jesus has ever preached, a series of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about adultery, but he says, but I tell you the truth, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have a committed adultery in your heart. He says, I see you. All of you are lustful. All of you are sinful in this way. Your egos are starving. You're trying to hide that lustfulness. You're willing to deceive people, destroy people, destroy weaker people. You're willing to beat them up, humiliate them, make a tool out of somebody who is helpless to feed your egos. That's how weak your egos are. That's all it takes rather than facing your own sin. Verse 9, it says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart, so they be, beginning with the oldest people first because the oldest people have committed more sin, they start to walk away. They start to walk away. You got the patience of Jesus. You have the poise of Jesus, the courage of Jesus, the confidence of Jesus. Lastly, you have the pardon of Jesus. So now he turns to this woman. And can you imagine this woman, verses 9 to 11, this woman is naked, weeping, fearful, shameful. Um, And and, uh, they see that the man, where's the man in this? The man is gone, so she is alone, and she's helpless, defenseless, right? And in verse 10, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Now, wait a minute. If you think about this, what he should say is, you are guilty and I condemn you. That's what he should be saying. Or he should be saying, you are not guilty and so I'm not condemning you. But Jesus says, you are guilty. But has anybody condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. And this is the key. Jesus here is in a position to either trample on the law or trample on grace. He can't uphold both, right? You can't uphold both. How's he going to do that? How do you going to uphold both? Despite his gentleness, despite his patience, Jesus doesn't just let her go, right? He's patient. He's gentle. But it's not like he's just letting her go. He doesn't say, oh, these guys, these religious people, they're just bullies. That's why I'm here, you see. You know, uh, don't worry about what they did. Don't worry about what they said. Don't let that get to you. That's not what he says. He says, really what he's saying is, I will not let you blame shift and now look to the religious people and say it's their fault. You're the one that committed the sin. You are guilty. So I'm not even going to give you the opportunity to say, yeah, you know, where were they when I needed them? They're supposed to help me, right? These teachers, they're supposed to be teaching about grace, right? It's their fault. He says, I'm not going to let you do that either. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you blame other people. I'm not going to let you stand here and just act like a victim. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not going to let you blame the religious people. But what he's saying is, you know, because he's saying if you do that, that's the real trap, blaming your circumstances, blaming other people, you're still overlooking and you're still running from your sin. That will not change you. How does this woman get changed? And I'm going to show you why I know she is changed. But how is this woman changed? Be, you know, does Jesus, he, does he just look the other way? He says, you know what? We're going to let this go. You know, know, just just live a better life. Is that what he says? That's not what he says, right? Um, This woman, she gets it. She's exposed. She's broken. She's convicted. It's all true. It's real. You don't see her making excuses now that all the men are gone, you know Jesus here's what happened. You don't see her there's there's no record. If they're going to record Jesus bending down to write on the ground, we don't even care what he wrote about. You would think that she would have some sort of defense for herself, but you don't see any of that recorded. There's no explanation, there's no excuse, there's no blaming. She doesn't run, but that's how she gets it because she's pardoned. Pardon for sin and a peace that endures. Thine own dear pleasure to cheer and to guide. Strength for today bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, right? God's faithfulness. If you're living with deep-rooted sin, indwelling sin, and we all have indwelling sin in our lives, and it's powerful, and you've got this damaged ego that wants feeding, and sometimes you feel rejected, and sometimes you're hurt, don't blame other people. Don't run from other people. What did this woman see? She's standing. Think about the scene here. Okay, one by one, everyone's dropping their stones, and these teachers of the law start walking away. And this woman is amazed. She's pardoned, and then she looks, and Jesus is still standing there. Jesus is still there, and that is the real fear, you see. That is the ultimate fear, you see, because she's standing before the one man who knows her, the one man who sees her, the one man who actually has the right to execute. He could have smited everybody, including this woman, but they all go away, and then he asks her, has no one condemned you? No one. No one, sir, except Jesus. He remained. And yet look at his gentleness. Look at his patience neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. He doesn't just let her go. Look at the authority of Jesus. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a commissioning. On one hand, he says, you're not condemned. On the other hand, go now and leave your life of sin. That's the kingship of Jesus. That's the authority of Jesus a proper response to the love of Jesus, to the rescue of Jesus, to the defense of Jesus is what? We go now, and we are changed. We are new. We live new lives. Does he say, go, live any way you want? No, that's not what he says. Go now, leave your life of sin. What he's saying is this. This is sin. On one hand, he doesn't deny. You are a sinner. You have sinned. That You have sinned gravely. This this deserves capital punishment. He sees the woman. Jesus is literally without sin. Not just those sins. He's without sin. He's the only one who has the right to cast that stone. But he doesn't cast that stone. He doesn't cast it at her. He doesn't cast it at the Pharisees. And he doesn't just throw it away. He doesn't just drop it and walk away either. The judgment doesn't just go away. This woman, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, you could be apologetic. This woman's apologetic. He's crying. He says, that's not enough. This debt is real. This is a real debt, and it must be paid. Somebody has to pay the debt. Why, is, why does somebody have to pay the debt? Think about it. He said, wow, why do, I mean, why? If Jesus is really king, if he's really God, why can't he just let it go? Is he that petty? Have you ever really been hurt by somebody? We all have been hurt by somebody in our lives. Go ahead. Today, right now, everyone here has been hurt by somebody. Go ahead. Just forgive them. Let's walk away. You can't. You know why? Because you know there's a debt. When when somebody has hurt you, you know that there's some spiritual debt that that has been accrued. And the more hurt there is, the greater the debt. Somebody has to pay. Either they can swallow the judgment, they can swallow the pain. That's why we want to inflict pain. That's why we throw stones, because there's a debt. That's going to pay down the debt. Or you can say, forget about it. I'm going to let you go. I pardon you. When you say that, then you're swallowing the pain. You're going to swallow the bitterness. Who swallows the pain here? Because Jesus says, go. You are no longer condemned. Who swallows the pain? Who's going to get the stone? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be, well, is going to be betrayed, and they will condemn him. In other words, what he's saying is, the Son of Man will be judged. I will be condemned. They're going to roll a massive stone over me. That's what they're going to do, a boulder over me, over my tomb. Jesus is thinking at another level here when he's talking to his disciples because really what he's talking, when he's talking to this woman, for that matter, in chapter 8, what he's saying is when I says, I don't condemn you, he's thinking about his death. He's thinking about the cross. Jesus will get the stone. In Romans chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why? Because Jesus was condemned. Jesus will face the boulder of the wrath of God, the boulder of the judgment of God. In John chapter 19, we see another trial. uh, Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate says to the Jews, his own people, he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. That's what he says. I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is innocent. I've done my examination. I've done my investigation. This man is innocent. But what do the people say? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Here's this woman who is guilty. She is condemned. She's naked. She's alone. She's rejected. But Jesus Christ is innocent. And yet, he's condemned, and he's stripped naked. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because what he's really saying is, now here on the cross, I am totally alone. I'm absolutely alone. My God, my God, why have you, the one person who could be my defense, has departed from me? What he's saying is, I've been cut off. I've been judged. I faced ultimate rejection. I will be crushed by the pelting wrath of God, and I'm alone to bear it alone. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, There is now, there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Religion says, you are guilty or you are not guilty. Therefore, you are condemned or you are not condemned. But Christianity says you are guilty unequivocally, you were all guilty, but you were not condemned. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for you. Do you believe that? Plunge your sin, plunge your guilt into the grace of God. Plunge your guilt into the power of God's grace. Plunge your guilt, plunge your sin into the pardon of Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to get the stone. So you have an ultimate advocate in me because I had no advocate on the cross. You have an ultimate defender in me. You have an ultimate dissent, a rock-solid case because God is just. He will not make you pay again something that I've already paid for. That would not make him just. God is just. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. You know what that means? It's a transactional financial term meaning the debt is paid there's no more dead. And do you know, even on the cross, do you see him rattled? He's not rattled. He's poised. Look at the gentleness and the patience and the love and the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the poise and the self-control of Jesus. This is the key. This is the key to your poise. This is the key to your patience when you're angry, when you feel accused, when, you know, when your reputation has been challenged. How? Because you did nothing to earn your rescue. Jesus absorbed the blows of God's wrath. He paid the debt. That's good. That should make you humble. That should make you humble. That should make you submissive. But he embraces you. He loves you. He is kind. And he died gladly for you. In Isaiah 53, it says he was satisfied. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He says, I did it for you. And so sin no more. That's what gives us the power to not sin. That's what gives us a strength. You become a person with humility. You become a person with power. You become meek. You have the love and the assurance and the certainty of being in Christ, and that gives you the gentleness and the patience to not throw stones at other people. Do you see that? Because Jesus, the only stone that could ever kill you, Christ absorbed. The only wrath that could ever destroy you, Jesus already absorbed. It, that was hurled at Christ. Plunge your sin into the enduring love of Christ. Trust in his work. Trust in his righteousness. And let the power of Christ shape you. Now, how do we know this shaped you, this woman? How do we know that? Think about it. Everyone's gone. It was just her and Jesus. That means the author wasn't even there. Whether it was John or whether it was Luke, whoever wrote it wasn't there. So how do we know the story? How do we know the story? The woman told the story. She had to have. She was the only other one there. She was the witness. Do you see that? What this means is, number one, we're all naked. We're all before Jesus. It means Jesus sees us, Jesus knows us fully, and yet he loves us fully, right? When somebody sees you naked, it means that it's somebody that you want to be intimate with. It's someone that you need to be intimate with. You know, so uh, what is that? That's prayer. That's the Bible. Know the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the word. Trust his word. It's being in community with people who know the Bible, who pray, and who can pray with you. That's what it means to know Jesus, to practice knowing Jesus, because when you're around a community of people who understand God's grace, who know God's grace, who love Jesus and want you to love Jesus, and you're surrounding yourself in them, that is shelter, that is, that is protection, that is defense. That's what it is. That's how you become intimate with Jesus, opening up about your sin, it's not just hanging out and talking religion. Then you're like the Pharisees. You're actually very distant. Don't hide yourself in a cloak, right, of, of um, uh, just not being aware of who you are and what you're doing. Don't run from Jesus that way. Surround yourself in a community of people with humility and with power. That gives you the opportunity to open up about yourself and who you really are. Second, this woman, she's, she sees a just God in front of her. Here's Jesus, a just God. No one can stand. That's really what Jesus is saying. No one can stand. You need to pursue righteousness. But also, she sees a gracious God, right, who sees her fully, knows her fully, and yet loves her fully. That love leads to obedience, right? It's not the other way around. You don't obey to be loved by God. That is what we call, then you're just like the Pharisees, right? Then you're just another teacher of the law like this, Right? that's going to make you want to hurl stones because you're never going to know where you really stand. You're never going to know if you obeyed enough. But if you understand the love of God, if you experience and know the love of God, that's going to make you obey. Love makes you obey. If you're married, you understand that. You know, It's the love that makes you obey because there's an inherent love for your spouse. You want to love. You want to practice that. You obey. You do things for them. That's what you do, right? Three. You don't throw stones. This is the end of gossip. This is the end of maligning people. This is the end of pride. This is the end of anger. This is the end of, just the, or the beginning of killing your ego. The beginning of submitting yourself before people. Do you get that? This woman is the eyewitness in this story. Everybody else is gone. She's the eyewitness. She was changed. You know, are you angry because you have the sense of right The sense of righteousness, the sense of justice, the sense of judgment, you know, that makes you unsubmissive. And when you're unsubmissive like that, it's going to tire you out. Or you're going to be fearful of other people and you're constantly running, you're constantly hiding, you're constantly covering over yourself, you're working to maintain a reputation that you feel like you've built up, then you're oversubmissive. You're constantly catering to people. That is incredibly tiring. Or you've been hurt by people. You're bruised by people. You're beaten up by people. I understand. Do you know that there's a graphic that's floating around in cyberspace right now that 74% of pastors say that they've been betrayed by somebody close to them. Do you understand that? I understand. Trust me. I understand what it means to be betrayed by somebody who's close to you, to be accused by people who are close to you. Go to Jesus. He sees. He knows. Let him be the rescue. Stop blaming other people. Stop being the victim. Are you guilty? Go to him. See Jesus on the cross for you. Let his grace melt you. Let his grace melt you into a love and obedience that you've never experienced before in your life. And you will be rescued and you will be healed. That's how you heal in Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray.